0: Good morning, let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, we have already prayed this morning and we've sung, and now we open our Bibles to to hear from you. Would you grant us to, to do this consciously as formerly ruined sinners? Would you help us to consciously do this as your children? redeemed saints, aware of Your great love for us, that the things written on these pages You've written directly to us for our help and consolation. That these words are not written to to, uh, other people in another time that do not pertain to us, but this is for us. Would You help us to regard these words in this way. May your Holy Spirit personalize this text for us. As Jesus Christ has personally spilled His blood for us, that we might be His and that we might be your sons and daughters. We do ask for your help as we study, that we might understand the Word, certainly understand it rightly, but that we might apply it appropriately and that we might love what we find here, that we might love Jesus more, and that we might be helped by what we what we find. We might be more faithful. We need your help. We pray for it very boldly because... Jesus is our advocate, and we pray in His name, amen. Please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This morning we are, we are finishing this first chapter, looking at the, the final two verses of chapter 1. I'd like to get a a bit of a running start at it just for the sake of context. So as you're finding your place there, we won't just read the first two verses, we'll read beginning in verse 3. So stand with me and we'll read beginning in verse 3 through the end of the chapter. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed... according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. It's probably fair to say that most of us have our lives pretty well mapped out by the time we are in high school or, or college age. We, we know we have a vision of what our lives need to look like in order for us to be happy or fulfilled. We need to have a certain career and a certain level of success in that area. We need to have a loving family. We need to have these material comforts. And so we have that end or we have that what in mind. And so then we begin to work our way backwards. We begin to formulate the how. How am I going to get from where I am now to that end? So we begin to plan, I'm, I'm going to study in this field so that I can get this job and work my way up, and on the, the family front, I'm going to be very careful when dating, and so I'm going to marry just the right person, and, and we're going to have children, we're going to be very conscientious parents who will raise responsible and loving children who are going to turn out in, in just this way, and on the, the material front, we're going to be very careful with our finances so that by the time we retire... We'll have this size nest egg and we'll be able to sail the seven seas in perpetuity until we die in each other's arms at a ripe old age in our sleep. The problem is that as we're formulating our future, we fail to account for a realistic context. And that realistic context is the context of suffering, what what Paul refers to here in this passage as persecutions and afflictions. Persecution being that that form of suffering that comes upon us from the world because of our association with the name of Jesus, and affliction being that form of trouble which which encompasses all other forms of suffering. These forms of trouble come into the life of every believer, and when they come, threatening our what and our how, we're thrown into a tailspin. We don't know what to do, but perhaps we, we may find our way into a church like this one. And, and we're listening to a sermon series like this one, seeking to make sense of, of this kind of trouble. And we hear that God's ends are very different than our ends. Rather than, than this, this picture-perfect temporal life that we've planned for ourselves, God actually has something better for us. He, he, he wants for us life and intimacy with Jesus now, an enjoyment of Jesus in eternity, and He's using these troubles to get us there. And so we adopt this eternal perspective on life and difficulty. In other words, we look at the passage from last time, verses 5 through 10, and we actually adopt that for ourselves. We we adopt that idea that suffering is preparing for us an eternal glory with Christ. In other words, we we replace our ends with the Lord's ends. We replace our what with His what. But even if we do that, we're still left with this question of means. We're still left with that how question. How am I going to get there? It's the day-to-day. How? How? Keeping my eyes on glory, that is very helpful. But day to day, just practically speaking, where will the strength come from to deal with disappointment? Where will the strength come from to believe what is true about myself and about the Lord, about the world, about my circumstances? How will I know what to do in response to my suffering? and if i know what to do where will i get the strength the wherewithal to do the right thing in response to my suffering so we may have adopted the what we may have adopted the lord's ends we still need the how and these verses at the end of second thessalonians 1 they give us the how and the big the big idea this morning is this god's power activated in response to prayer uses our suffering to prepare us for glory. God's power, activated by prayer, uses our suffering to prepare us for glory. Look, look with me again in, at the beginning of verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you. Now jump to verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and of our Lord Jesus. So Paul gets to the end of, of chapter 1, and he begins this long sentence with a very quick mention of the end at the front of the sentence, and then at the end of the sentence, he completes it by expounding on, to the, on the end, or the result of our suffering. In the middle of the sentence, in verse 11, he talks about the means, or the how. So he brackets it with the what, in the middle is the how. So we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're going to start with the ends. We're going to start with the what, which is some, something of a, a review of verses 5 through 10. We're going to deal with that first. And then we're going to come back to verse 11 and talk about the means or the how. So first of all, let's consider verse 12. What is the end? was what, what what the result of my suffering? The end of my suffering is is the glory of Christ. And again, this is going to feel familiar because of what we saw a couple of weeks ago in verses 5 through 10. So, so verse 12 again, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember that the context of this whole passage is suffering, and, and more specifically The endurance of suffering. Endurance of suffering is more than just surviving it, but coming out on the other side with our faith stronger and our our love broader. So what is it that Paul prays would be the end or the result of our endurance of suffering? He says he wants to see the name of the Lord Jesus glorified in us. The name of Jesus glorified in us. Now, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, a name signifies a person's character. So what he's saying is he wants to see the character, the person who Jesus is, glorified. And that just simply means he wants to to see Jesus' character, his person, revealed where? In us, through our sufferings. So if we back up a little bit further, what what he's praying is for our storms to buffet us, to chisel us in such a way that his character is displayed in us. And that happens temporally in the here and now as we are forced, we're put in situations where we have to trust him in difficult situations. Godliness, which is just the character of Jesus, That is the fruit of faith. The more we're put in situations where we have to exercise faith, the more fruit we're likely to see. Faith, when when you, when you boil it down, faith is just clinging to Jesus as my rock, as my anchor, rather than clinging to the world around me or lesser things. And when I'm in a situation where the walls are closing in around me, financially or relationally or health-wise or in some other way. And I have to make a choice. How am I going to cope? What am I going to believe about myself or about the world, about my circumstances, about God, about what is true? How am I going to respond to my situation? The the crucible of life, it's forcing these questions on me. I have to answer them. In order to put one foot in front of the answer. And I'm one foot in front of the other. And I'm constantly answering those questions. I'm constantly choosing a coping mechanism. I'm constantly choosing a source of truth. I'm constantly choosing a way to live in response to the difficulties of my life. If I look toward myself for the answers to those questions. Or to other fallen people. That is a recipe for disaster. Because... I and everyone around me, we all have fallen characters. And if, we're, I, if, I, if I'm answering those questions based upon what's inside of me or based on what's inside of other people, then all of those answers are going to be springing from a fallen character. And as people are watching me deal with my difficulties, they're not going to be seeing the character of Christ. In other words, Christ is not going to be glorified in me, but fallenness is going to be revealed in me. But, on the other hand, if I say in the midst of my difficulty, it's got to be Jesus for me. He is going to be my anchor. He's better. He's my only way. That is, if in the crucible my eyes are on Him and I'm looking to Him to direct me how to cope, I'm looking to Him to tell me what to believe about myself, what to believe about my circumstances, I'm looking to Him to tell me how to respond to this situation, He's directing me then the answer to all of these questions, they're coming from His character and not mine. And the more time I spend in the crucible with my eyes on Jesus, Him directing me and me following Him, then the more His manner of life actually becomes my manner of life, and the more His character becomes my character. So listen to this. The crucible is the way to Christ's likeness. The crucible is the way to Christ's likeness The heat forces me to choose. And I won't choose otherwise. I, uh, unless I'm forced to choose, unless the, unless the heat comes upon me, I'm not going to be in a position where I have to choose. But the heat makes me choose where am I going to look. Am I going to look to Jesus or somewhere else? If I look to Jesus and nowhere else, that is faith. And faith in the fire leads to the character of Christ, makes me more like Him. And the more I'm like Him, the more that people are going to see Him in me during those difficulties, and then He is glorified in me. Now, can I tell you a secret? This is the secret of finding this whole process desirable. Because if we're being really honest, some people will hear what I've just said, that the crucible is the way to likeness. For being really honest, some of us would say, yeah, I don't really want to be like Jesus if being like Jesus requires me to go through the crucible. I'd, I'd rather just avoid the crucible. Here's the secret to finding that process desirable. The secret is becoming mesmerized with the character of Jesus, becoming mesmerized with Him. The more that I'm mesmerized with Him, More, I'm willing to go through anything to to have more of Him. I shared something something like this yesterday in the Assurance Conference. And and here's a way that you might go about developing a a taste for Him, a greater appetite for Him. This is just one thing that I would suggest. Just take 30 days and, and lay aside your social media for 30 days. Lay aside your your internet streaming services for 30 days. Take all of that time and just read slowly, methodically through the four Gospels, paying careful attention to the character of Jesus. What He says, how He approaches people, how He treats people, how He ministers to them. And personalize it. Think think to yourself, How has the Lord Jesus done what I'm seeing in this text? How has He done that to me? And just see if over the course of those 30 days you don't find yourself growing in affection for Him. That is just key. Becoming mesmerized with the character of Jesus, loving the character of Jesus, personalizing the character of Jesus, saying He has been that to me That is huge. And and then when you realize that the, the crucible of life, that's the opportunity to experience more of this mercy and more of His kindness, more of His love and humility and strength and everything else that He is, and not only to experience more of it, but to become like Him so that other people can taste what He's like through you That's a game changer. And the crucible is not so awful. It's something that may actually even excite you. That's how His name is glorified in us temporally in the here and now. It's through through the crucible. Now eternally, eternally, how is He glorified in us? Well, eternally, His name is being glorified in us it coincides with the next phrase in verse 12. If you look in, at verse 12, the next phrase is, and you in Him. He is glorified in us and we in Him eternally. And what this refers to is, is, a, is a, a concept that, that we've, we've placed a theological term on called Glorification. Glorification. It just refers to the completion of God's work in us in Christ. So we're, we're in the process of becoming more like Jesus right now. On the last day, when Jesus, when Jesus comes back, that work is going to be finally and fully completed in that we'll be absolutely like Jesus in our character and conduct, and we're going to have glorified bodies So these bodies that are deteriorating all the time, those are going to be gone. We're going to have eternal bodies to enjoy Jesus with forever. So He's going to be glorified in us in the sense that His work is going to be finished. We'll be like Him in our character, conduct, and our physical bodies. But then He'll be glorified in us in, in the sense also that it's going to be shown that all of this transformation that's taken place in us has, has, has happened because of His work. You know, Jesus, Jesus has always been perfect. We have not been. We were formerly haters of God, haters of one another, condemned by our sin to an eternity in hell. It was by Jesus' perfect life and His atoning death and His justifying resurrection that we become glorified saints. The Bible teaches that all those who repent and trust in Him, they are saved from sin, made like Him, and given eternal life with Him. And on the last day, it's going to be shown that it was not through any work of our own that we became glorified. It was through Jesus alone. The last phrase in verse 12 testifies that all of this is according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to be magnified because everyone in all creation is going to see that this enormous throng of people who look exactly like Jesus in their character and conduct, they are like Jesus because of what Jesus did, not because of what they did. It's all a result of grace. And on that day, the the end, the result of our suffering, will also be the end of our suffering in another sense. It will be the termination of our suffering and that we'll spend forever with Jesus, as verse 10 says, marveling at Him. So, the end of my suffering is the glory of Christ. It's for His character to be revealed in me and for me to enjoy Him forever. So that's something of a, of a review from the previous passage. So we're still left with this outstanding question of how. How, how, how am I going to get there just day to day? What is the means to that end? Paul gives us two means here. He gives us an ultimate means and a penultimate means. The ultimate means to the end of my suffering is the provision of God. The ultimate means is the provision of God. Look at verse 11 again. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. So he, he prays for God to do something to the end that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified in us. That's the end of, of our suffering. The ultimate means to the end is for God to do something. To do what? Well, it looks like there are two things that God does in verse 11. It looks like there's two things for him to make us worthy of his calling and for him to fulfill every, every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Now, this is not the first mention of our being worthy in this passage. If you peek back up to verse 5, look back up at verse 5, it says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. This is evidence. Evidence. What? What? What is evidence? Remember our patient endurance of suffering mentioned back in verse four. You might you might remember from from a couple of weeks ago the big idea verses four and five. Your patient endurance of suffering shows that God is right to say that you belong in the kingdom. Your patient endurance of suffering shows that God is right to say that you belong in the kingdom. Why? How, how does that work? Because verse three told us that patient endurance consists of growing faith and increasing love. In in other words, someone whose faith is growing and whose love is increasing in the midst of trials is by definition persevering in the faith. They're by definition showing the fruit of salvation. They're they're demonstrating that that they are saved by faith. Therefore, God is right to say That person is showing fruit of faith; they belong in the kingdom. That's that's verses three through five. So now we come down to verse eleven. With that in mind, and Paul is praying that God would continue to do, continue to show us worthy. This thing that he's already thanked God for doing earlier in the passage, for God to make us worthy, is for God to resolve every, every, to fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith. Paul isn't really praying for two different things in verse 11. He's praying for one thing. He's praying that God would make us worthy of the call by fulfilling every resolve for good and every work of faith. We we could paraphrase verse 11 this way. Father, please prove their faith by producing fruit in them by your power. Father, please prove their faith by producing fruit in them By your power, this prayer highlights the power of God at work in us to give what He requires. Now, let me just give you an aside here, so that we don't stray off into some some theological error. This prayer is not pushing on us a let go and let God theology, where we where we just sit back and see what God does. We wait to obey until God does something. We we, Paul refers here to our resolve for good. There's a decision to do good in the Thessalonians. We have a desire, an impulse, an intent to obey. It comes from God's salvific work in us, but it's a volitional choice that we're making. Likewise, He talks about our works of faith. There's an intent to act on what we believe. There are imperatives throughout the New Testament to the extent that we are to Strive to obey, strive to believe, strive to be faithful. So we ought not discount the Holy Spirit-empowered effort in the life of the believer. We cannot be faithful students of the Bible if we don't recognize that believers are called to strive to obey in this life. That is absolutely crucial as, as Christians. But what's emphasized in this passage is God's work our every resolve for good, our every impulse to act on faith will be met with and undergirded by the power of God. And implied in this passage, implied in Paul's relating of this prayer is that we can and we should trust God To give us the power to do what He's requiring us to do. This is a prayer for God to do. It's a prayer for God to exert power. Look at the end of the verse. By whose power are we made worthy? By by whose power is every desire for, for good fulfilled? By whose power is every work of faith performed? Now, now, Paul has already implied this earlier in the, in the passage in the thanksgiving section in verse 3. To whom was thanksgiving due for, for our loving acts? To whom was thanksgiving due for our growing faith? It's all from God. It's not our power. It's not our provision, but it's His. If Christ is going to be glorified in us on the last day, it will be a result of God's power in us Now this should come as something of a relief to those suffering trials right now because we can be so overwhelmed by our circumstances that we just think, man, there's no way. This thing is too big for me. I can't do this. I can't trust. I can't not sin in the midst of this. I can't be patient. I can't love people well. I can't do it. Now listen to this. Your Inherent inability, that is the inability of your flesh in the midst of your difficult circumstance, it casts no doubt on the likelihood that you will end up in glory. I'm going to say that again. Your inability casts no doubt on the likelihood that you will end up in glory. Why is that? Because this is not a question of your ability It is a question of God's power in you. The only question that you need to concern yourself with is, do I want glory and can I receive? Can I just hold my hands open and by faith receive strength? Because everything that He requires of you, He will give to you of Himself. Listen, the Bible is filled with these kinds of promises. I'm going to give you just two. Psalm 81.10. Psalm 81.10 says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Is that wonderful? Now how, how, how much more passive can you be than just opening your mouth? That's passive. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Jesus says something very similar In John 7, 37, he says, if anyone thirsts, now that's passive, right? That is need. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. If anyone believes in me, just believes in me, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Water, And we find if we continue reading in that passage, what Jesus is talking about is you believe in me, you're going to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you and you will have all the power you can stand on board. See, our, our predominant perception during difficulty is the depletion of our own strength and resources. And I, and I won't ask for a show of hands but I'm sure there are a number here who are enduring something right now and and what is most on your mind is is just what I said earlier. I don't have the strength for this and I I cannot do it. How crucial then is it to remember that it is His power that will provide what we need? And when we have the right perspective, the the, the strength Storm can actually be a very exciting time because when when you, when you when you reach that moment, you realize, okay, I have no idea how this is going to work out. I have no human options left. I have no strength left. I can't do anything. That realization in the mind of a person who has a very large view of God can be very exciting because when our strength and resources are stripped away, the stage is perfectly set for His strength to shine in us. And this is exactly how He's designed it to work. Did you realize that? Some of you are are engaged in some aggressive Bible reading plans right now. You may have noticed a pattern as you've read the Bible. Have you noticed that, that the Lord doesn't choose the strong? Anybody notice this in your Bible reading? Doesn't choose the strong. Doesn't choose the firstborn. Chooses the lastborn. Chooses the secondborn. Chooses the weak. He doesn't doesn't use the wise, he uses the foolish. He takes fishermen and shepherds and tax collectors and prostitutes and lepers and murderers, jars of clay, not vessels of gold. He he takes the empty, he gives them himself and at intervals he strips them of everything but himself so that they're left in situations where, where they can say, I have nothing but Jesus, and it's in those moments that He does amazing things in and through them, and then who is glorified? He is. He is. And they have this this tremendous joy of experiencing Him and having other people see nothing but Him in them. The Bible teaches that God is in the business of showing Himself strong in the weak and needy. And the greater the trouble, the more opportunity for His strength to be manifested in us. And what a sweet thing it is. We can endure believing that He will come through with just what we need. The end... Or, or result of, of my suffering is the glory of Christ? How will I get there? Ultimately, it will be through the provision of God. This God who, who, who Paul has said is, "My Father," at the beginning of this chapter. That's the ultimate means. It's going to be His power. The penultimate means to the end of my suffering is the prayers of the saints. prayers of the saints. He writes again in verse eleven. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling, and may fulfill every resolve for you, and every work of faith by His power. And I find it instructive that Paul didn't. He didn't. He didn't just state, he, "Look, Thessalonians, don't worry. God will make you worthy. God will fulfill every resolve for good." But rather, he related to them that he was praying fervently. We always pray for you that our God will make you worthy. That he will fulfill every resolve for good. Now now clearly, Paul and the other apostles, they, they had a high view of God's power and of God's disposition to act on behalf of his people, and yet at the same time, All of the apostles testified to the crucial nature of prayer. None of the apostles had what many evangelicals today have, which is an attitude that sounds something like, well, you know, God is going to do what God's going to do no matter what, so it doesn't really matter if I pray or not. None of them wrote like that, lived like that. Neither did Jesus for that matter. You know, Jesus prayed like everything was riding on it. Jesus prayed like prayer mattered. Do you remember that time in, in Mark 9? There's, there's a man who has a, a, a son who's demon-possessed. He's afflicted. And the man brought to the disciples, his son asked them to do something about this. Can you cast this demon out of my son? The disciples couldn't do it. And so Jesus did it. And afterwards, the disciples took Jesus aside privately, and and they asked Jesus, hey, why could we not cast it out? Because they had been casting out demons left and right. Why could we not cast this one out? Now, we we might have expected Jesus to say something like, because you're not me. I, I, I can only do the hard ones. You can do the easy ones. I can do the hard ones. But what did Jesus say? He said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but what? Somebody say it. Prayer. Now, isn't that amazing? This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, Jesus prayed. They didn't. And that's why Jesus could cast it out and they couldn't. See, Jesus had given them his authority. His authority to do everything that He had been doing. He didn't give them a lesser authority to just cast out the junior varsity demons and He could only do the the He gave them His authority. The difference is that He was praying and they were not. Jesus prayed more prolifically than anyone in the whole Bible. He'd stay up all night praying. And when we hear Him saying things then like, this kind can only be cast out by prayer We put two and two together, we realize that the power of God is administered through prayer. Well, then we think, well, no wonder Jesus did so many amazing things. He prayed more than anybody else. And eventually, the disciples, they put all of this stuff together. They saw Jesus does these amazing things. Jesus prays like nobody we've ever seen, and they ask Him, Jesus, please teach us to pray. And He did, and that's why we find in their writings, them with this conviction That prayer is crucial in 1 Thessalonians. Paul mentions twice what he's praying for them, and then twice he asks them to pray. He says, look, pray without ceasing. And before he closes that first letter to the Thessalonians, he says, brothers, pray for us. All over the New Testament, there are commands to pray just, just for all kinds of things. And then requests, hey, brothers, pray for us. It's in Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, both letters to the Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, Philemon, Hebrews, James, all the New Testament shows a firm conviction that God will act on behalf of His people. God will act on behalf of His people alongside this conviction that prayer is essential in God's working. These things happen right beside each other. And if you want a reference that shows these two things right beside each other, you might write down 2 Corinthians 1, 11 and 10. 2 Corinthians 1, 11 and 10. Because there Paul writes this. He writes, referring to God, He will deliver us. That is, he is convinced God is going to deliver me from this difficulty. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 10. He will deliver us. The very next verse Verse 11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. God's power is administered through the prayers of His people. God has chosen the means as well as the ends. He has infallibly planned to empower us to endure suffering unto the glory of Christ. That's the end. He has also infallibly planned the means. He has infallibly planned to administer that power through prayer. If you want to help somebody who's suffering, get in on that means. Pray, pray, pray. Pray that they would be delivered from that suffering. Pray that they would be delivered through that suffering. If it's a health issue James is very clear. Pray for healing. It's a command. Do that. Pray for healing. Pray this as well. 2 Thessalonians 1.11 Pray this. Oh, my Father, please give my brother, give my sister to be worthy of the call. Fulfill their every desire for good, every work of faith by your power so that the name of Jesus Christ will be fulfilled in them and them in him. Pray that for them and pray that for them and pray that for them. Many of you have been praying fervently for, for me and my family regarding my, my health recently. We've, we've heard so many expressions of care and concern from you. One thing that we, we've heard repeatedly, both my wife and I, people have said something like this. This must be so difficult for you. You must be so discouraged. I can only imagine how disappointed you are. And I, I could see why people would think that. Perhaps we should be. But the truth is that we're not. We, we are encouraged. We are joyful. And the Lord is my witness. At times, my encouragement has bubbled over into excitement about what lies ahead. And You might expect my wife to be just a mess. I, I counted the other day, there are five people. Five hurting people. Some, some believers, some unbelievers that the Lord has put in her path in recent days and she is just radiating compassion and care for them. How? Well, ultimately, our generous God is, is, is making provision for us. He's giving us strength, joy, and love. Penultimately, you are praying for us. And we have, we've told a number of folks, Shelby and I both, we're, we're doing so well, it's obvious people are praying. And we, we would say, please, please keep praying, please. God's power is administered through the prayers of His people. Brothers and sisters, look around your, your entire sphere of influence There there are there are people all around you who are struggling, who are suffering, who need the power of God at work in their difficulty to give them what they need to trust and love and endure. Pray for them. Pray this passage for them and then watch and see what the Lord does through your participation. Just imagine how generous this God is. God is so generous. Can you think with me through his generosity? Let's just think here, okay? Because the the Lord could have just said, okay, here's here's my end. It's for for you to glorify Jesus eternally. Now get there. But he doesn't do that, does he? No. He says, here's my end for you to glorify me eternally. I'm going to get you there. I'm going to give you my power. That's crazy generosity. But he's even more generous than that. Because in my life, getting me there, He's actually incorporated all the people around me and allowed them to participate through prayer. So any power that He's exerting in my life to get me there, there's a host of people that are participating through prayer. So any power exerted in my life by the Lord is coming to me by the prayers of other people. And any hurting people that I see around me that that need the Lord's power, He's exerting it to them. Through my prayer. So I'm not only experiencing the Lord's power in my need, but I'm actually channeling power of God to other people by praying for them. It's just God's power coming to me and coming to, 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 others, to others through me all the time. This, this God is generous beyond measure. And we complain about suffering. God pours out His power to the hurting, unto their temporal and eternal enjoyment of Christ through the prayers of His people. Let's get in on that. How is a big question that weighs on our minds. How will we navigate the storms of life? How will we not just survive them but grow through them and cross the finish line with our faith intact, flourishing to enjoy Jesus forever? Ultimately, it's going to be through God's power. Every resolve for good, every work of faith is going to be carried out not by our own flesh, but it's going to be by His divine power. Penultimately, it's going to be by the prayers of the saints as we do this privileged work of interceding for one another. And in that way, God allows us not just to watch Him at work, but to participate with Him as He empowers others to endure suffering. So, brothers and sisters, let us take this passage, believe it, and live it. Let us endure with our eyes on glory. Let us trust in the power of God and pray for one another. Let's pray now. Dear Father, you are generous beyond measure. You, Father, who did not spare your own son but gave him up for us all, how how will you not also with him freely give us all things? And we see that you do you continue to give to us. Give to us more of Jesus. He he even now is in, in glory at your side interceding for us. You give us of your spirit who lives inside of us. You Give us your word to remind us of things that we're prone to forget. Give to us through your church, your body. Serve us and help us. Give us the privilege of participating with you as you work in others, you love others, so generous to us, and we pray that you would take these verses that we studied, that you would work them deeply into our minds and hearts, that we would trust, that we would trust you with the how of, of the end of our suffering. We would believe, Lord, that our every desire for good, our every work of faith will be met with, undergirded by Your power. And Lord, let us take seriously the privilege of prayer. Let us look forward to participating with You in the endurance of others by praying for them with great fervency. We thank You for these things. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.